and welcome to our first Pensions and Protection podcast in association with Royal London. I'm Kimberly Dondo, Digital Content Manager for Money Marketing. In the first episode of our new Pensions and Protection series, we'll discuss how the new consumer duty regulations are providing more support for consumers. We'll also think about the ongoing cost of living and interest rate crises and how both are affecting consumers. And we'll look at the ways in which providers and advisors can support each other to ensure customers maintain a good financial resilience. Um, today, I'm joined by Sarah Pennells, Consumer Finance Specialist, and Claire Moffat, Head of Technical and Marketing Compliance from Royal London. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Hi, Thank good you. to meet you. Um, so, can we start with you, Sarah? Can you give us a bit of a background into yourself and your role? Yes. So as you said, I'm the consumer finance specialist at Royal London. So I've been with Royal London since the start of 2020. Uh, Before then, I was a personal finance journalist for for most of my career. Uh, My my job at Royal London, though, is to look at the kind of financial issues that people face every day and think about what we can do to help. So at the moment, I'm spending a lot of my time talking about the cost of living and rises in interest rates inflation and so on. But Mm. I might also talk about things like the state pension um, and help people understand what standard of living that might provide them in retirement. Right. Great. And Claire? So, um, as you mentioned, I'm the Head of Technical and Marketing Compliance. And um, what we would do is we would um, think about what advisors need help with. So, sometimes we're writing articles, um, giving presentations, doing webinars, things like that. So looking at legislation, regulation, um, and really trying to kind of help with some of the complexities. Um, and so we're very busy on the pension side in relation to, um, to that just now. Um, and mm-hmm. I would also help out with some of the consumer stuff. So Sarah and I work together sometimes on some of the um, consumer issues, thinking about what help we can give um, in that area too. Okay, great. So since you know quite a bit about regulations, I'm going to stick with you here, Claire, for this question. Um, So could you give us a reminder of the aims of the consumer duty in relation to ensuring clients have access to financial products that will meet their needs now and into the future? I'm not going to talk um, about consumer duty in a huge amount of detail. I'm sure the listeners will be glad to hear that. But I do (laughs) want to pick out um, some of the key points which I think deal with this question about needs now and in the future. And of course, we have to start with that principle, don't we? A firm must act to deliver good customer outcomes for retail customers. Right. Now, one of the key aspects of the consumer duty and and something that sets it apart from previous regimes like treating customers fairly is the degree to which the FCA expects um, the duty to be embedded across all of our cultures and and to be evident across whole firms. Now, again, I'm not going to go into detail in the cross, into the cross-cutting rules and the outcomes, but I just want to mention when I think these are important in relation to this question. So, foreseeable harm, well, well, that's one of these areas and, and that can be through action and omission to, to act. And, and we need to act to avoid harm that can be um, reasonably predicted. Mm-hmm. Now, another one that I, I think is crucial is that firms must act to enable and support customers to pursue their financial objectives. And of course, that's throughout the customer journey and the life cycle of the product of, um, or service. 
Um, now, of course, when we think about this, it doesn't remove the responsibility that consumers have for their actions, mm-hmm. um, but consumers can only take responsibility when they're enabled and supported to make these informed decisions um, in their interests. And, and advisor firms and providers, well, we need to proactively and reactively focus on putting customers into a better position to make these decisions in line with their needs and objectives. And And that can mean taking account of consumers' behavioural biases and the impact that characteristics like vulnerability can have on their needs. And so now I just want to have a think about some of the outcomes I think are relevant. And um, the first one I think is is really key when we think about this question is products and services. And that's all about making sure that these are designed to meet the needs of consumers in the target market. So regularly reviewing recommended products in line with intended target markets well that's helping now and in the future so it's not a one-off exercise um, Mm -hmm. and if issues do emerge it's preventing any further harm that's really important price and value well well that's key then that's not about a price cap or a requirement to be the cheapest in the market Essentially, what the FCA are saying is that firms need to ensure that the price a customer pays for a product is reasonable compared Mm -hmm. to those overall um, benefits that they get. And we know that some products can take advantage of that natural inertia. So long-standing customers who, um, you know, they've been in a product for a long time, they might receive low interest rates or high charges, and that could be poor value. Customer understanding, well, well, that is key. And of course, there's that high level requirement for the package of communications to support good outcomes. So using clear and plain language, making things simple, does the mm-hmm. client understand? And doing things like avoiding long sentences, using colour. And one area that was really highlighted by the FC was that of layering. So where the most important information is at the beginning. Right. Or summarised. Um, and then the least important at the back, because we know that's where it's likely to be um, least read. Mm-hmm. And we know that, that consumers are reluctant to admit to to a lack of understanding. Mm-hmm. And so we can't just ask, are clients satisfied? And, you know, have they understood the process? Because that could fall a bit short. So the regulator wants to see more probing analysis in these reviews that, that test and, and demonstrate understanding. Now, it's not a requirement to do this for every customer, but the regulator does, um, you know, they expect firms to be able to demonstrate that they've got an approach that delivers these outcomes. And, and the last um, outcome I want to mention here, well, that's consumer support. So making sure there's no barriers in place for clients um, who want to f- contact them, switch funds, products. Um, and again, there's an emphasis um, put on characteristics of vulnerability. And we're going to come back to that in a minute, I think. But there's also this, you know, we need to think about this kind of onus on um, wealth advisors to think about protection needs of their clients. And, you know, if they can't deal with it, referring them on. And the same with protection advisors considering um, pensions for their clients. So so that's a bit of a whistle-stop tour through, you know, how the consumer duty supports consumers um, in relation to access of products now, but also in the future. Yeah, yeah, it's quite comprehensive. um, And I think it was a helpful reminder for sure. Um, So, Sarah, with your background and your knowledge, how are the challenges we're currently seeing um, in the economy affecting consumers' lifestyles and their attitudes to building financial resilience? 
Well, I think it's a really interesting question. And we have been tracking how people are responding to the cost of living crisis since yeah. February last year. And the way we've been doing that is we've been carrying out research every six months with 4,000, a sample of 4,000 nationally representative UK adults. Mm-hmm. Now, at the moment, not surprisingly, many people are worried about rising housing costs. And that's true whether they've got a mortgage or whether they rent. Mm. When we started tracking this in, in February 2022, we were asking people about you know cutbacks they were making. Were they making cutbacks to their, their day-to-day or longer-term spending to help them to pay for these rising you know, essential bills? And what they've told us consistently is they are making cutbacks on their day-to-day spending. So things like eating out less, buying cheaper food, buying less food, buying fewer clothes, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. I think encouragingly, what we've also found quite consistently is that most people aren't making cutbacks to their pension contributions or protection policies. So again, this is something that we've tracked. And one of the ways we've done this is we ask people about cutbacks they're planning to make. And then six months later, we say, okay, what cutbacks did you make? And now what cutbacks are you planning to make in the future? Mm -hmm. And when we've done this, Approximately one in 10 people, give or take, have consistently said they are considering cutting back on their pension contributions. But when we go back six months later and say, OK, what have you actually done? Only about one in 20 have actually done it. So mm-hmm. that's the sort of that's the, the positive news. I think where it is worrying and where I think it's probably getting a bit more worrying is that we are seeing for those people who have savings, they are being eroded. People are dipping into their savings to pay for those higher day-to-day living costs. And I say, you know, where people have savings because not everybody does. And Mm. again, our research has shown that about one in five people have less than £100 in savings. So that's, you know, a really low buffer for them. And I think one of the reasons that we found this, the level of savings so concerning is that it's actually the amount of savings someone has that is a bigger indicator of their likelihood of being in financial crisis than their income level. Now, in our research, we've defined financial crisis as being unable to pay major household bills. Mm -hmm. Now, we ask people about their savings, but we ask them a sort of similar and related question, which is what size of unexpected expense could you cope with either from your income or savings. And this fluctuates slightly, you know, over the last sort of uh, 18 months while we've been tracking people. But between a quarter and three in 10 people have said they can only cope with an unexpected expense of up to £500. And when you look at what's been happening to, you know, ongoing rising costs, particularly recently around mortgages and rent, you know, for this group of people, they've got very low financial resilience and so are very vulnerable to a relatively small change in their own circumstances. Yeah. It's yeah, it feels quite difficult, doesn't it? Um figuring out exactly how people will be able to balance that moving forward. Yes, absolutely. I think this question is for both of you. So um, I'll start with you, Claire. How can providers like rural London um, identify vulnerable customers, like uh, Sarah just mentioned, and support advisors to help those who are struggling? Well, I think providers um, can help advisors better understand the challenges um, 
for consumers at different stages of life and, and help identify different types of customer vulnerability. Now, we've got a consumer duty hub, we've got resources there. And I think, um, you know, what, what um, advisors are telling us has been really useful as our guide to supporting vulnerable clients. We have a fair value assessment template and we have a cost of service template. So that's three areas where, you know, providers can help. And, you know, and I think, Sarah, um, well, you know, is, is much better at talking about kind of vulnerability in general. But when, when we think about vulnerability, um, people can suddenly become vulnerable. And a good example of that is death. And advisors can help a lot at a time like that because they have good relationships with their clients. So that often means that, you know, this has been talked about at length before death. Now, that might be in relation to talking about wills, nomination of beneficiaries for pensions, trust planning, um, for life policies, for example, to make sure that the right money goes to the right person at the right time. So when that death of a loved one happens, then having an advisor that the client trusts, well, it's crucial um, because decisions will need to be made. And a good example is, you know, if a spouse inherits a large pension fund and, and they want to go into drawdown, then there has to be conversations about risk and planning. And that's happening at a difficult time. So if there's a, a great relationship there, that's crucial. But then it's about thinking about, you know, how can providers and advisors work together to support um, these vulnerable customers? And from a provider point of view, then we've got a wealth of insight from customer behaviour into potential problems for customers. So we can look at trends and customer behaviour. So maybe um, monitoring requests for additional support, like payment holidays, increases in missed payments. Um, we've got financial wellbeing content. We've got helping hand mental health support for protection customers. Mm-hmm. And we can recommend that customers seek um, further financial advice if they, maybe they've not had financial advice in the past. Now, of course, we won't always have that client-specific knowledge, but we can give an overview of how things are trending and look for patterns in consumer behaviour, and that will help advisors. And advisors can tell us about clients and vice versa, and that that means that um, there's an opportunity for advisors, so if issues are identified, to reach out to their clients at this difficult time and review their needs. And that should give confidence to advisors and providers alike so that we can responsibly share information, which you know, we feel is going to ensure better customer outcomes, especially when we're thinking about those vulnerable customer cases. Mm -hmm. And um, Sarah, with your perspective, what can providers do to help vulnerable customers? I think before we talk about that, it's maybe just worth taking a bit of a step back and looking at how the way many people view vulnerability has changed. Right. Um, You know, the COVID pandemic showed us in a in a very brutal form that someone's circumstances can change dramatically mm-hmm. due to a situation that's absolutely outside their control and which could not have been predicted. Yeah. And, you know, we know that some people benefited financially from being able to work at home. We know without having to pay for commuter costs, meals out, those kind of things during COVID. Mm-hmm. But others became financially vulnerable very quickly for a range of reasons. And yeah. You know, it could have been that they lost their job as a result of the COVID lockdown or their hours mm-hmm. were reduced or they were bereaved or maybe their own health suffered. And I think what many consumers found difficult, you know, apart from the obvious sort of horror of the pandemic itself, was just how vulnerable their own financial situation was. And in some cases, what little support was out there. Mm. Now, you know, as, as we all know, we went straight from COVID to the cost of living crisis. And that has affected just about everyone to a greater or lesser degree. Although I think 
because of what's been happening with mortgage rates, we're now seeing a bit of a divide between those people who are paying housing costs and how they're affected and those people who basically own their properties outright. But Mm. what I guess the last few years have shown us is that all customers are at risk of becoming vulnerable. But that risk is increased by four key drivers. So there's a health, life events, resilience and capability. And one of the themes that's coming through from our research is that People don't know what help is available and are reluctant to ask for it. So when we published our first research into the cost of living in March last year, we launched a cost of living hub at the same time, which we regularly update. And that has information for consumers on how to cut their energy bills, what help is available from the government. And more recently, we added a guide on how to deal with rising mortgage rates. Now, I mentioned earlier on that financial capability was a key indicator of vulnerability. And we've done separate research this summer that showed us that people have quite a low understanding of the state pension. So, mm-hmm. again, we've produced a guide that explains the basics of the state pension. And we also explain, I mentioned earlier that financial capability was a key indicator of vulnerability. And we did some separate research that showed us that people have quite a low understanding of the state pension. And mm-hmm. so we produced this guide, it explains the basics of how it works. And we also explain in a step-by-step detail how to get a state pension forecast. And the reason we've done that is we found that fewer than half of people had actually got their own state pension forecast. That's what our research showed. So we created a state pension hub because we felt this was an area that we could really help our customers improve their financial resilience. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the state pension is the foundation of most people's income in retirement. Mm -hmm. But again, our research shows that for three in 10 women and just over one in eight men, it's their their sole income. So, as I said, we think it's a real key part of improving people's financial resilience if they understand the state pension and what they might get. And also, crucially, what that might translate to in terms of a standard of living in retirement. Now, these resources are designed with consumers in mind, but we do think that they are really useful resources for advisors. And they complement some of the resources that Claire was talking about earlier on, particularly around our consumer duty hub. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure, like you just mentioned the state pension, and I know that there are potential changes that might be coming. So are these resources that are constantly updated with any changes that might come about? Yeah, so we do update our guides on a regular basis. So I think there's quite a lot of confusion out there because some of the changes have been um, announced as a consultation and then maybe there's been a change of plan. So mm-hmm. the information we currently have talks about what we know is going to happen. And mm-hmm. obviously, as further decisions, as and when further decisions are made, we'll incorporate that into the updated versions of our guides. Fantastic. Well, thank you for that very in-depth analysis and everything that we need to know about the consumer duty and what products are out there that can be helpful, especially with Royal London. So thank you, Claire and Sarah, for joining me today. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the first episode in the new Pensions and Protection series in association with Royal London. In the next episode in the series... We'll be joined by two investment specialists to explore what to look out for when choosing your client's investment solutions and the value active management and expert governance can add. And if you'd like further resources or support to help grow your business and deliver value for your clients, visit advisor.royallondon.com slash people powered. 
See you next time.